0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the LitBreaker Ad Network. LitBreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web, with breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers, it's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker Breaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, Or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. LitBreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's LitBreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You
1: and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful.
0: Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was
1: incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now
0: here's your host, Brad Listy just one person at just one time right (laughs) okay everybody here we go again this is it this is other people this is me surrounded by piles of books this is you surrounded by piles of uh, I'm not sure how are you today I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles it's nice to be with you my guest is Kathleen Rooney she's got a new novel out called Oh Democracy it's available now from Fifth Star Press so she and I are going to be talking in just a bit we had a nice conversation Uh, before I get there I wanted to talk about ratings and numbers, and uh, I wanted to uh, whine publicly and engage in uh, (laughs) self-pity and express darkness and fear for you. So here's the thing. In uh, April, the numbers for this show dipped, and this happens every once in a while, month to month. You know, ever since this show launched, there's been a steady upward tick in terms of its listenership. Uh, Every once in a while, there's a hiccup. I fixate on this. I watch the numbers. uh, You know, I watch the trend line as if it were an EKG. I'm three years in on this. And, uh, you know, I'm like, fuck, is it? What's happening? Does it suck? Is the show dying? (laughs) It's It's like it's like it's E.T., when he turned white is that what's happening is that where i am in life so uh there's that it's been in the back of my mind nagging at me and i know i shouldn't worry about it you just got to keep your nose to the grindstone but it bothers me and you know if i'm being if i'm being honest too what the fuck am i doing thinking that this is going to turn into something am i crazy i think i might just be a stupid man this should be a hobby. It, I mean, it kind of is, but I have like these high hopes for it that somehow I'm delusional, right? It's a fucking books podcast. <laughs> you know, there's like one or two podcasts, you know, that do anything. And then there's like a million that don't. What does Han Solo say in Star Wars? Never tell me the odds. Same thing's true with, uh, with books with uh, publishing you know you have that like with those one or two books and then the, the, the other million sitting there in the landfill <laughs> so there's that and then uh, there's this other thing that's been sort of uh, bothering me hanging around in the back of my mind from the other night uh, I went to a reading I went to see Juliet Scoria read she was uh, my guest in the last episode and she had a reading in uh, Echo Park At stories bookstore with uh, Mira Gonzalez and Ben Laurie and XTX and uh, and I'm friendly with all these people they're local so I went over there and uh, I went to see them read thought I would say hello Uh, I got to meet a very nice young lady named Carla who's a listener of this program she came up to me and said hello I had kind of a, uh, a fan experience celebrity fan experience I felt very important I actually, I was actually tongue-tied. I didn't know what to say. That's never happened to me before. <laughs> Carla was so sweet. We took a picture. I, I really appreciate that. Just the fact that she likes the show that much. So, uh, anyway, that, that's not what bothers me. That was all good. The readings were great. Uh, ben Laurie read a story that I really liked. I didn't get to see XT or Mira read. And then uh, Juliet uh, read last. ...from her book, Black Cloud, which we talked about in uh, the last episode. So, afterwards, a a small group of us went out to get uh, a bite to eat and some beverages. And I wound up, and it was like Juliet, Mira, Ben, Chelsea Martin was there. She's been a guest on this show. That was the first time I got to meet her. Uh, And then a couple other guys that I didn't know. And, uh, you know, everybody had some food, pizza, beer, whatnot... And then, uh, the check came and I picked up the check, the entire thing. And I, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or, you know, congratulate myself. It's actually bothering me that I did this because I think it's a complicated thing. I think that, you know, there are a lot of different aspects to why I did that. And I'm going to try to untangle that for you right now because I know you want me to, (laughs) but, um, so you know on the one hand I think there's there's a part of it and I think it's a smaller part of it but it's there there's a part of it that's rooted in insecurity wanting to appear more flush than I actually am because I don't have a lot of money you know I probably feel like uh, weird about the fact that I don't have as much as I think I should at this particular point in my life but you know I'm also a writer I was with writers they get it almost everybody's broke so there's that, and then there's the uh, the issue that I do feel like I have some money. I don't have much, but I think I have more than most writers, simply by virtue of the fact that, A, I'm married to a woman who does decently well, and then, B, uh, I don't have any debt burden because my parents were able to pay for my college. So I don't have that hanging over me. And I feel like... That, that's part of the calculation for me. And and then there's just the anxiety of it. You know, you're sitting there at the table with a bunch of writers, especially with a bunch of writers. Uh, I mean, there's anxiety when there's a group check situation no matter what. But when it's a bunch of writers, it's especially bad for me. Because, uh, you know, everyone's pulling like crinkled up dollar bills out of their pockets. and <laughs> Like rolls of dimes. And it's just, it's like, fuck, man. I'll pay for it. I got it. Fuck it. You know? And I you know, I don't want to make it sound grander than it was either. It was like $120. And yes, I know $120 is nothing to sneeze at, but I have $120 <laughs> to my name. Thank God. And I was just like, I'll pay. And I do this a lot. And I think, you know, it's insecurity. It's anxiety. Uh, I also want to be nice and I want to err on the side of generosity. Like past the point of what is considered acceptable or rational or normal or even smart, I think. Because, uh, you know, I pay attention to the news. I know you don't even have to pay attention to the news. You can just kind of look around. Inequality is a big thing. And when you talk about inequality, what you're really talking about is greed. Selfishness. And that bothers me. And I don't want to be that. And I think uh, that's a big part of my motivation. It's just to be the opposite of that. Like to almost be careless with your money. Like, here you go. I'll do it. I don't care. (laughs) And yes, it's like I also want to be liked. And yes, I'm probably worried about the fact that I, you know, don't have enough money and whatever. So it's just trying to unpack that. and and like worrying that like because I don't really know I didn't you know if it was a bunch of my friends who know me and I picked up the check fine but I didn't I don't know Chelsea I don't know Juliet that well I don't know her friends what were they thinking I hope they were just thinking like wow what a nice guy as opposed to wow what an emotionally needy move (laughs) you know what I'm saying it's just weird I should have just put my $20 down chipped in but I uh, I jumped the gun. I just threw my card down. And I do that a lot. And I can't afford it. <laughs> so anyway, I don't think I've arrived at any kind of satisfactory conclusion. But maybe there's none to arrive at. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow My guest, once again, is Kathleen Rooney. Her new novel is called "O oh, Democracy. It's available now from Fifth Star Press. Very pleased to have her here. Really enjoyed talking with her, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Kathleen Rooney, and her new book, once again, is called "O oh, Democracy.
1: I am in Chicago, Illinois, at DePaul University in my office, and my office has no window, and the door is shut, so... <laughs> it is very fluorescent. So you are in, in here right now.
0: You're essentially entombed in a fluorescent.
1: Yeah. Place. I'm in Chicago, but I could be anywhere.
0: Okay. Okay. Chicago's a great city. And by the way, is it is it springtime there yet?
1: It is. It is getting up to 79 today, but I think they I think they highballed it. I think it's going to get up to 79, you know out in a field in Joliet somewhere um, in direct sunlight. I think here it's probably going to be like 70, but we'll take it.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I was talking to, you know, I was, uh, Gina Frangello was out in Los Angeles last week. Uh, yeah, for, yeah. Festival of Books. She's a Chicago native and has lived there her whole life, uh, more or less. And uh, I was talking to her husband and, and uh, you know, I'm from the Midwest. My sister lives in, in Chicago. And I always say that, like, Chicago obviously has its rough uh, season. It has its long, cold winter. But, if you catch Chicago on a on a on a good day on like a seventy degree spring blue sky day, it's the best city in the world. It's per, on, a, yeah. on a on a good day, it's perfect.
1: Yeah, and it knows what to do with itself. It's like all the alfresco dining pops out, and everybody's on their bike. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I'm I'm kind of envious. So, uh, I want to talk to you too because you know your book uh, Oh Democracy uh, centers on uh, politics, and you know uh, alludes to. Uh, you know, the whole rise of Obama, uh, Chicago, obviously being, uh, you know, a central location in his political life. And uh, I'm curious to know, like, were you involved in uh, what's, what's the park? Grant Park? Is that where the, were -hmm. you were you down there for that? I mean, was this, was this an outgrowth of like actual political experience of yours?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was. I, um, like my protagonist, I worked as a Senate aide and, one of the things, um, one of the best things that actually happened to me while I had that job was getting to go to that rally. Um, the tickets were really hard to come by. Um, in you know 2008, leading up to it, um, even when it was unclear that he would necessarily win, everyone just wanted to be there. And I remember being in the office um, down Where, in Chicago Loop. Oh did, yeah. Who
0: did you work for? You was a, uh, uh,
1: Senator, yeah, Senator Dick Durbin, okay. the um, majority whip, uh, yeah. the second, second most important uh, member of the yeah. Senate.
0: Yeah, um, I was I'm always impressed with him. I feel like he's got like this sort of like folksy, uh, bearing, but yet he's like very, he's good on the Sunday shows. Like I'm a big political yeah. junkie. Like he's just, he's got a, he's a smooth operator and he comes off yeah. like, seeming like a pretty nice guy.
1: Yeah. He's, he's solidly, he's solidly. All right. Um, and yeah, and like for the the rally we you know, because we got tickets as as one of the, the benefits of of working for Durban and Durban, you know, did a ton of campaigning for Obama and they knew each other, you know, being both from Illinois and in the congressional delegation, but we saw people on Craigslist offering like crazy stuff to get tickets to the rally, um sexual favors, um, you really? know, like food stuff, like anything they could offer, um, just wanting tickets to that event because it was so hard to get into. Um, And so, yeah, I actually I ended up being there and it was um, it's kind of the culmination not to not to spoil it. But I feel like people know how that election turned out by now. Um, But the the novel, yeah, Obama won. Um, The novel ends there. And I think, you know, the reason for that is um, I hadn't yet seen anybody write about that. I feel like we've seen a lot of. You know, nine eleven novels and and post nine eleven novels, but I hadn't really seen anybody treat the, you know, two thousand eight campaigns. And I feel like Obama's election, you know, regardless of how you feel about party stuff, is just it's a super significant moment. And I, you know, wanted to take a crack at at putting that into fiction.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm interested in like your actual experience, like having worked in there and having gone through that. Because I mean, being like a being in uh, Dick Durbin's office, that would be close to. I mean, pretty close to the center of the action, because I know Obama and Durbin are good, you know, buddies, and they're from the same state. And then, uh, you know, having been there to witness the victory and been close to the, you know, close to the scene there in Chicago, like, were you – did you find yourself swept up in it all? Did you find yourself jaded from the process? Like, how did it leave you emotionally?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I um, kind of, you know, both. I – just a little bit of my background so you can see kind of like how did I end up there? I was um, the kind of like political dorky kid who even in high school, like before I could drive, before I could vote, was, you know, working on campaigns out in my suburb of Chicago and um, just being very idealistic. And so, you know, I kind of followed this traditional path. I went to school in Washington, D.C. I got an internship over the summer. Um you know, and ended up working in Durbin's office that way. And then they hired me back as a staffer and then sort of on and off through through the 2000s, through the aughts, um, I kept kind of hovering between this professorial, you know, writer life or this political staffer life. Um, and I did it for so long because I loved it and I really believed that I could, you know, capital M, capital D, make a difference. And. Um, and as you observed, I, I think highly still of, of Senator Durbin, I am, you know, not a disappointed Obama supporter. I think he's doing the best he can under awful circumstances. But I did get jaded and I did sort of come to realize that if you are an idealist um, and you are someone who, who is motivated to take political action because you want to make the world a better place, um, working in politics is probably the worst possible place you can go to try to do that. Right. Um, Right. It's I mean, just, it's, it's not, yeah, it's, it's not, not
0: good. A, it's not a place for idealism. It's a place for pragmatism. And like that can sometimes take on like I think a ruthless countenance, you know, or some sort of like there's a certain coldness that I think you have to have when you're making especially when you're in a position where you're making decisions and uh you know, I don't know, like just as an observer, I, I've I've often found like the bewilderment, particularly on the left with Obama's performance in office, you know, where people are like, I just can't believe he didn't follow through on all this stuff or he hasn't been like, you know, the black Jesus or whatever that we expected. It's like I I don't think people who have that response to him were paying attention to his campaign in 2008. I think there was a lot of hype around it. I I think I guess his campaign probably – you know, whipped up some of it. But a lot of that just came from people projecting. Like, I I have not been surprised by his performance in office very much at all. Like, he kind of seems like what I expected him to be, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think he's, you know, I'm not an apologist for him. And I think there's a lot of disappointing stuff he's doing. But I think, I mean, he's up against one of the most obstructionist (laughs) congresses, you know, in the history of ever. So I don't think we can lay it all at his door. But I think, I mean, kind of like you said, this this coldness and this ruthlessness, um, I think, You know, the people that I saw around me as staffers who were successfully climbing the staff ladder didn't do so because of their ideological purity, but rather um, that they were self-serving and pragmatic. And I think... Uh, what was disappointing for me, and this is something that I kind of feel—I don't want to say silly—but I feel like a lot of my my peers knew this intuitively and didn't have to go through the meat grinder like I did. They just were already like, "Well, duh, politics sucks," right. um, you um. know. But I I have an informed <laughs> disgust with politics. Like I was there and saw it, and so I came to realize that idealists are kind of the cannon fodder for the for the political industry because they're willing to work so hard at these menial tasks for little to no compensation, because they believe in what they're doing. Um, And then the career staffers, the ones who do have this like, cold stoicism that you kind of mentioned, are able to exploit the idealist, um, you know, not to advance like we, the people, but to advance like me, the person. So, you know, I guess <laughs> right. a lot of people were like, of course, but I had to kind of go in and be like, oh, I'm that's exactly, what's going on. I'm exactly
0: <laughs> the same way. I have, I'm a total, I think I have an idealist. I mean, I, I know I have an idealistic bearing or like it's predominant and I've had to learn as I've been an adult, I think at a much slower s- speed than some that the world is sometimes a harder place or like you know not, not as not nearly as pretty a place as i like want it to be or like ima- yeah. imagine it could be or something like that so you can i can feel like on the one hand a little silly for not being quicker you know on the uptake but then there's also a part of me that's proud of the fact that like i have some ideal and i'm not just like that quick to just like cave and be like okay this is the way it is the gloves are off i'm going to do whatever it takes to advance the you know the interests of myself
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that's why I I don't think idealism is is that's why I hesitated to use the word silly. I don't think it's dumb. I think, you know, one of the things I say in the book is an optimist is one of the saddest things a person can be. And I think that capacity for disappointment is sad and sort of beautiful, not to sound, you know, (laughs) like self-congratulatory or to sound like I'm stepping up to you and being like, wait, be an idealist. But I think there's a beauty to it because if you're just purely pragmatic, you are looking at problems and being like, well mediocrity is as good as it gets. Just deal with it. I mean, there's so many problems where you're like, well, the world is racist. Okay, just deal with it. Or, oh, the pay gap's never going to close. So just kind of, you know, what did you expect? I think uh, you still need those people who are idealists to kind of move the ball forward, even if often they themselves are not the ones personally um, who are going to get this like ego rub or this, you know, Chance to shine. I think. I think it's still valid.
0: Yeah, like the, the, the whatever like big huge biological soup the world is like it needs its idealists in order to like, yeah, foment change somehow. Totally. Uh, okay, so uh, writing about politics, especially writing in fiction, because I think if you're writing in nonfiction, uh, depending on whatever mode you're in, you know, you can be uh, more polemical, or you know, uh, you can you can voice an opinion. I think when you get into fiction. Uh, You can sometimes, I think, uh, do that. I think of like Orwell, you know, who was particularly skilled at it, where he was advancing an agenda through his fiction in a way. But, you know, I think sometimes when writers do this, they fall into this trap where, uh, you know, you can sort of feel the author puppeteering the characters and it feels, it's just a, it's an intrusion and it ruins the fiction. And I think you have to be wary of that because, you know, even if you're conscious of that as a thing, uh, sometimes it can seep in. So, did you find yourself having to scrub your text of that when you were doing revisions?
1: Yeah, I did. I, you know, because also partly it was the political aspect, and then partly too, I, you know, this is my first novel, and I've, I've since drafted what I hope will be a second one, and, and I've written fiction before, but this is the first published one. So, I was coming out of like a poetry trad- tradition and a nonfiction tradition. So, I did have to really try hard, not just to get any potentially ideological or agenda stuff out, but just to not sound like an essay or not sound like, you know, a memoir um, and to make it entertaining and arcing. Um, but I did like the the kind of model that I held in my mind. I don't know if you've read them, but have you read the Little House on the Prairie books for no, Ingalls Wilder?
0: No, but I grew up watching the show. I mean, I know. Oh,
1: OK, <laughs> cool. So, you know, but in the books, what's really interesting, and and this is something as a kid, I think I noticed, but it was instinctual. It wasn't. Intellectual, But um, I came to learn later as an adult that, you know, even though Laura Ingalls Wilder, who I think is a great writer, um, wrote these, she wrote them with a great deal of assistance from her, her only daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, who was a very accomplished journalist and, and freelance writer, but who was a committed, dyed-in-the-wool, rabid libertarian. Um, you know, she she palled around with Ayn Rand. She gave lots of, of her personal money to libertarian candidates for office from, you know, local up to the presidency. And there are moments in the Little House books, I just, I reread The Long Winter, um, this past winter, because here in Chicago, as, as in many places, <laughs> winter <Right>. was <laughs> madness, and it made me feel better to read about their winter, which was worse. Um, but you have periodic moments, the story will just be beautiful, it'll be going along, it's captivating, um, and you're so, totally immersed and swept up, and then suddenly, pa you know or in your case you know Michael Landon will just step out from sort of behind the the you know fourth wall and make some long speech about how we're not going to take any government handouts we're proud pioneer people who've always been individual and got by on our own grit and determination and you're just like wah wow, pa and it it is because i think Rose Wilder Lane is is trying to co-opt these um you know memoiristic pieces of fiction for her own political purposes. And it, it it doesn't ruin the books. The books are so good, they're unruinable, but it ruins the moments and really makes you feel like there's this puppet hand, right? This hand of Rose Wilder Lane, like, reaching out into Pa's body and moving his mouth. And it's gross. It's grotesque. And so I, mean, I was like, don't do that. A, don't.
0: I just had experienced a, gra- a, <laughs> a graphic visual involving Michael Landon and Rose Wilder. Yeah.
1: yeah, don't think too hard about it. But that's that's an image that I definitely held in my mind to, to try to remind myself not to... Um, not to do that.
0: Well, yeah, no, and I'm i always so fascinated. Like you speak about libertarianism, and then we talked about like the difference between the idealists and like the Ruth myth pragma, uh, pragmatists or the optimists or, or you know, or you know what I'm saying? Like all those different yeah, kind yeah. of dichotomies in life, and then I guess in American life in particular, and I think they're necessary. You know, like I think that these tensions in our world and in the way that we operate as human beings are necessary. Like. There's a part of me that can that can empathize with the libertarian uh, point of view. I love the idea of self-reliance. I love the idea uh, of you know mistrusting uh, consolidated power and all that kind of stuff. Right. And d- depending on it for our sustenance or depending on it for whatever, whatever. But then I can also see the other side of it, where it's like uh, you know, if it's every man for himself, this just turns into a really ruthless society. I've also never seen libertarianism in action. Um, on, right. on a big scale work? Like, can somebody point to a society where libertarianism is in effect and is actually working? I've never, uh, I mean, maybe... I don't think so. <laughs> I, you know, it's just, it seems like there's an idealism, but I guess the point is, is and, and I think I've mentioned this on this show before, is that, like, I, I think I will be forever uh, fascinated by and, like, slightly confused by, if not deeply confused by, the tension between individualism and collectivism and, like, where does the middle fall? And, like, what what's the proper way to go? I don't know. You know, like I, I, I can see, yeah. I can, can sort of see the ups and downs of both. And I, I guess it just comes down to where the middle is.
1: Right. And I think, I mean, to, to kind of bring it to, I mean, those are things I think about a ton as well um, in terms of my own politics, but and in, in terms of how to kind of try to turn that into good fiction. Um, I think one of the things I kept in mind about how to explore ideas about democracy, but also trying to tell a story that was entertaining and it's I mean it's a comedy I should emphasize it's a it's funny book I wouldn't call it satire because real life is often just so strange it's hard to be satirical but um, you know I chose to have the book be narrated by The ghosts of the Dead Founding Fathers, um, which means most of the time you have this, like, close, pretty sympathetic third-person spotlight on the protagonist, but you also have this opportunity to step back and zoom out to a a more philosophical perspective. Um, And I think one of the things, I I think this kind of ties to what you were saying, is, like, one of the things I wanted to do is not, like, not overemphasize the individual, right? You need characters. I want it to be character-driven, but also to kind of make this point not so much that it's like a political agenda on either side of the aisle or from either ideology, but to consider how individuals interact with institutions and how often it's not other individuals, it's not a villain standing in our way saying, no, woman, I'm going to pay you 77 cents on the dollar, you know, for a man, it's, it's a system that that is unquestioned and nebulous and atomized and in place. So it's hard, you know, it's not that there's like a guy in a black hat who the guy in the white hat has to shoot down. It's, it's a much bigger and more complicated web of, stuff
0: well yeah and that's like the banality of evil thing you know where you're like uh, was it hannah Arendt who was talking about yeah. the nazis and how like they were all just bureaucrats you know like right like these guys who ran these concentration camps they like they were just charged with like making the trains run on time and like it just so happened that the trains were filled with uh jewish people uh, yeah and yeah it, and it was like that sort of thing where you just have these people in place doing things and you know you can't point to one of them as the m- mastermind i don't know if this is the proper analogy but you know what i'm saying like when you when you have some sort of evil in life or something that you're trying to work against an injustice, however grand or small, um, like you're saying, you know, it's it's often institutionalized, and and the and the blame, if there is such a thing to be, um, parcelled out, can be spread out so wide because there's so many different people involved in upholding the institution at fault. Am I making sense? <laughs>
1: yeah, no, that is, and I think I mean that's one of the other things the book tries to look at is the the ways that um, institutions are like a knife, they cut both ways, to quote a phrase, like sometimes it's terrible, right? It's, you know, institutions that are working to preserve inequality or that are working to, you know, consolidate wealth in the hands of a few and, and shut everyone else out. But other times, I mean, the other the other side of the coin that I hope the book looks at is, um, you know, and the title of the book comes from a Walt Whitman poem. Um, and, and I was really interested in this idea of positive institutions and the way that Whitman you know, who has his flaws too, but seems to believe, not naively, um, I think he's very aware of of the ways in which America falls short, but in an America where there are institutions and there are communities where we do work together. So it's not just that institutions are always bad. And I think this circles back to like, are we libertarian? Are we communist? What are we? You know, but striking that balance where you can be an individual, but you also can come into community with other people and work towards something that might be good. And I think that's why, um, you know, I unqualifiedly think the election of, of Barack Obama was a good thing and and important for so many reasons. And so that's why, you know, the Grant Park rally is, is key to the book. It's a moment. And I think even in the moment, everybody knew that as happy as we were and that as much as we felt we accomplished something, it would instantly begin to be torn down and unravel and start making us sad again. But for like a second, there was proof that we could live in a world that was, that was beautiful and making progress.
0: Yeah. It was like Um, the, like the, the wave was cresting or something. Yeah. That was it. So yeah
1: or like I mean like Martin Luther King you know the the arc of of it the of time is long but it bends toward justice or I'm I'm butchering that a little but this idea of progress.
0: Yeah no I mean I think there are those moments I mean it, it seems to go up and down there are these like uh cycles of history or whatever you know the rise and fall and that was definitely a, it seemed like a high point for the country and uh, when uh, you think about politics uh, and you look at like the way, cause I always like, I, I sort of monitor this. It seems like, and, and especially in the literary community via like Twitter and whatnot, but sure. uh, I don't feel like a lot of people, uh, specific, particularly younger writers don't feel super political, at least not in their work. And sometimes I'll read something and it could be anything. It could be like an interview with like, uh, you know, some punk rock dude, or it could be an interview with an author. Or it could be an essay and, someone will say like, fuck politics. I don't vote. Uh, like I think George Carlin doesn't, you know, didn't vote in his life and he was totally anti the whole thing. And I can be influenced by that. Sometimes I'll be like, why am I paying attention to this? Am I just an idiot? Like, should I just wash my hands of all of it? And just like, is there any point to me, um, trying to stay informed and participating in this process? Is it, is it just all like a farce? And am I one of the fools who believes that it isn't like, do you ever have those second guesses on yourself?
1: Oh, totally. I've been working on an essay about um, why I still vote and how I have almost come to see my own participation in voting in terms of like an addiction, like it's a behavior that makes me feel good in a way, but that might actually be harming me. Um, And what I mean by that is, I think sometimes I don't I don't think that it's necessarily true for me, but but working on this essay has caused me to think about it a lot. I used to be somebody who was like, Come on, vote, it matters. Right. And now I'm much less inclined. I think, you know, George Carlin, yes, Russell Brand, you know, is the latest one who's been like, Don't vote, it doesn't matter and, and it's hard to dismiss. Um, but what I mean about the these sort of addictive properties is I you know, I go in, I just voted last month. We had the primary here in um, Illinois and there were some ballot initiatives like there was a question the reason the big reason I voted was there was a referendum about raising pay to taxi drivers and I thought we should um and so I really wanted to vote for that and I did but they lost but as I was there I was the only person you know in this big gym at the park district there were these three ladies who were working the election and they were so excited to see me because clearly they hadn't seen anyone all morning and it just felt so sad and desperate but I was you know I still got my little like dopamine squirt or whatever from doing My civic duty, and that caused me to think, like, well, does it matter? I would say yes, had the taxi drivers won, that would have made people's lives, like, appreciably concretely better. But I think the key thing is it can't be substitutive for actual action. Um, You know, if you vote, it's not enough. You have to, like, do other stuff. And often it's non political stuff to make the world better, if that makes sense. Um, And I think that's the same thing with writing. I do sometimes get concerned, Um, I just did a reading at UIC, which has a PhD program, which is very um, heavily Marxist because this guy, Walter Ben Michaels, works there. And um, during this Q&A, he was asking me some similar questions. And I think uh, the substitutive idea is really important. I think people who write political stuff, and I sometimes see this, I won't name names partly because I just can't think of any and I I don't want to call people out that way. But uh, people acting like their political poem is changing the world or acting like because they write, quote, Engaged unquote literature, they're making this difference, and I think that's dangerous. I think you know it's it's good to engage with that kind of thing in your writing, but you can't think that a poem is equal to voting, is equal to canvassing, is equal to community organizing, is right. equal to protesting. Right. Like the you know you have to understand the spectrum.
0: Well, and I think this is like this is the thing about service and helping uh, your fellow man and like you know whoever it is, friend, family, stranger. Is that like help involves sacrifice, you know? is right. And the greater the sacrifice, tends to tends to equate to the the greater the help. And so, I think people are lazy, and I think people want to believe that, like, oh yeah, if I fire off this poem and like put it up on my blog, I'm somehow like moving the needle in some you know. And maybe you are in some like micro way, and I don't mean to like uh, you know denigrate that. I think there's something positive in expressing yourself in that manner, but people don't want to get their hands dirty and they don't want to be inconvenienced right. and, and they don't want to be inconvenienced in terms of time energy. A lot of the time, uh, you know, being, having to like spend a Saturday knocking on doors or gathering signatures or doing this like tedious grunt work that, that really isn't pleasant or they don't want to be financially inconvenienced. Like God forbid they would give up, uh, you know, a significant portion of income or sacrifice, you know, whatever it would be, you know? and I, and I, I don't mean to sound holier than thou, because I could stand to work on this stuff too. But um, I have that thought a lot of the time, and I have that thought in the context, in like the broader context of the world. When I think about, uh, you know, what's it going to take for people to get their act together, and especially in a in a world where so few people have so much, and so many people have so little, uh, like like essentially, what has to happen is that uh, people have to decide to give away their money. <laughs> Right, And and a lot of it and a lot more than they, like they, not 10%, like it's not tithing. I'm talking like if you're a bazillionaire, like you've got to be willing to live on like $2 million and then give away 48 and say, right. people are dying. Kids are dying. This is what, and I don't, and I got to be honest, I don't have much faith that that's going to happen. I think people won't do yeah. that, you know, I hate to yeah. say it, but I can't imagine that people would do that. It's like, they want their $50 million. They want their four houses. They want their 24 cars and they want their kids to have, uh, you know, a giant pile of money that they didn't earn when they die. And that's just the way the world seems to be. But I don't think, like, considering the population, I don't know. I'm going off on a rant. But do you see what I'm saying? Like, I have that, yeah. I think about that stuff a lot.
1: I do, and so do I. And I think um, I don't have <laughs> – sadly, I'm not necessarily going to argue against you. But I think – I don't know. Maybe you saw it; it was a big – study that just got released. Um, I just I saw it on the, the BBC, um, which is a news source I enjoy. Um, and it kind of goes back to your question of like, what's the point of being informed? Um, but they just did a recent study. Um, this uh, These two professors from I think it was Princeton and Northwestern um, that proved using, you know, data-driven metrics that um, the United States is actually at this point not a democracy anymore. It is an oligarchy. And again, I feel as though this is one of these things, like I said earlier, where it's like, well, no shit, you know, like it's been that way for a while. But I think what's really interesting is it's almost like the Vita count where it's like, well, you felt this way for a while, but no, here's, here's the data. Here's the pie chart that, that does show that, you know, economic elites and lobbyists that typically represent business interests have a vastly greater impact on U.S. government and policy than um, citizens. And so, I guess I'm not. I'm saying I don't disagree with you, but there's even data. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it.
0: yeah. Well, no, and it's like I had Mark Leibovitz on this show. He wrote that book called This Town. I don't know if you read that, but Mm-mm. it's like really juicy, like uh, yeah. political stuff. He's like the uh, head political writer for New York Times Magazine or something. And,
1: yeah, yeah, I should uh, read it.
0: Yeah, you would, you would dig it. But I mean, it basically talks about like this this gravy train in Washington uh, to speak of uh, oligarchy and the way things work and also to go back to what you were talking about with respect to, uh, you know, the really pragmatic uh, lifer, staffer people in Washington who are climbing that ladder and who are, who are just sort of like in it for the career as opposed to in it right. for like the service aspect of it, at least predominantly. And so, you know, you, 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 there's like this whole... Uh, merry-go-round of money in Washington and you get in there and you get on it and it's a good life. Like this the standard of living and the economy in Washington, D.C. is not by accident one of the best in the country.
1: <laughs> right.
0: And politicians get into that system and the people who work as operatives within that system at whatever echelon, like they get in there and they don't leave. And it's just like this kind of exchange of money, which seems uh, explicitly oligarchical and uh, corrupt. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think this is one of the things I've been thinking about, you know, as I wrote the book, and also just as I've been doing, um, you know, this kind of conversation about it now that it's coming out. And I think, I mean, democracy just is simply like, if we think back to like eighth grade civics, a form of government where all citizens participate equally. And it's it's not that way. I mean, not just with this oligarch study, but I mean, recent rollbacks, like the thing I've been watching with total horror is the rollback of the the Voting Rights Act from the 60s, where you really do have, and it's mostly conservatives, people, you know, being like, well, there's election fraud, and they're just overtly trying to disenfranchise poor people and people of color, like people in communities, um, you know, who are not ever going to be part of this oligarchy anytime soon, who are just being cut out of the process. And it's so blatant. And then, you know, the Supreme Court doing all this, you know, campaign finance rollback, like Citizens United, and now more recently McCutcheon. And it's just, it's, it's like, what's weird is that there's even less pretense. I feel like, you know, for a long time, it's been this way, but there's at least been the pretense of uh, still being in a democracy. But it seems more and more that, that certain sectors are just like, nope, screw it, we're You know, we're out for the 1%. And I don't know. I keep, I don't know if there's going to be a revolution or what. I just, I don't know what can happen.
0: Yeah. I think about this money thing in politics where you have these super rich people who now can just give unlimited quantities. Right. Which would seem and and you know what is it money is a voice or what is money is speech isn't that the argument yeah sort of like corpora- yeah, mm-hmm. corporations or people and it's like, Or
1: people yeah
0: and I, I just find myself rolling my eyes like wait a minute so somebody can give uh, if they have a billion dollars they can give five hundred million dollars to a politician or to you know politicians across the spectrum and you're telling me that they don't have uh, you know an outsized influence on policy compared to people who have nothing and can give like fifteen bucks or whatever like. It seems sort of sort of blatant. I guess the only thing I could think of that might counter that is if the poor get organized. And it's like one of those things where like micro donations somehow outweigh. But, you know, it's just that alone, like doing all that organizational work and getting it's it's like herding cats, trying to get like 15 million people to donate at a level that will somehow uh, counter the donations of one person who only has to account for himself or herself. You see what I'm saying? Right. Like it just—it seems like that's—that's yeah. that's the inherent advantage. You, you're dealing with one person whose whims are expressed through all this, uh, you know, uh, largess, and everybody else has to like organize and like. Post stuff on their Facebook walls and
1: <laughs> right yeah satisfy themselves with like Twitter activism yeah. but I do think I mean one I can't be you know because even though I've been through you know like seeing how the sausage gets made and i'm I'm pretty much um, depressed about things I think there are flashes of hope and I do sincerely think there are people who manage to buck this trend of fear and self-interest I think I mean I'm not going to try to make her sound like a saint, but I think Elizabeth Warren excites me for that reason. I think, you know, there are still people who are trying to say this needs regulation and we are stronger together. And, you know, so there's a chance for that. So I don't think I think the door is mostly shut, but I think there's still like a crack of light shining through.
0: Yeah, you need I mean, you know, you have there are some good public servants. That's the thing about it is that it's so easy to sort of lump them all into some big. pot of uh badness and corruption and you know um you know uh, ill intent or whatever but there are some people in it who who are idealists or or at least like that's their primary orientation i think she might be one of them and um you know i I love it when people it's great when you have somebody who is an advocate for people as opposed to an advocate for you know the the powerful you know it sounds a little corny to talk like that but i think that's really the truth and uh, the problem is that so many of these institutionalized problems are so complex that you really need somebody like her who's an expert on this stuff who can talk truth to power and who knows the game. You know, like, like right. if, if I tried to do it, I could just sort of like hem and haw and like have like general instincts about the way things are going that, might, you know, that may be accurate. But in order to really nail these people, you, know, you have to really understand the machinery. And so I don't think there are a lot of those people in the system or in, in our society. No,
1: No, and fewer and fewer young people. And that's what, um, I want to sound, I feel like I sound so like, get off my lawn kids these days. I'm not even that old. I'm 34, but I, I do think it's upsetting that, and I don't blame them though. I mean, it's a depressing industry, the politics industry, but there are so few of my students or young people that I know who have any interest, not even in just voting, which most of them don't. Um, But in in participating, and I think that's that's really concerning. And there was an article – I'm a dork who reads this kind of stuff, but um, I'm not that interested in sports, but politics is like my sports, I guess. I get it, yeah. Um, You know, I just – I follow it because it's entertaining too. but there was this article, maybe you saw it, about how weirdly, I guess or maybe paradoxically counterintuitively, even though all these, you know, young people were on board with the hope change thing Obama was doing, very few of them have, have actually transitioned into public service. Yeah. Way more of them are going into lobbying, like you said, or you know, speech writing or think tanks where they can get the big bucks and not actually have to like go through the icky part of helping people and yeah, they don't want to get their hands dirty. They just want to get the big paycheck and that's I think pretty crappy.
0: Or they've had the idealism beaten out of them, you know, because that, right. that yeah. happens, that happens, you know, especially for young people entering the economy at the time that they did and seeing that the market and the way things are, it's like, it's survival instinct, you know, it's right. not, it's not necessarily like, uh, like I've just caved to my lesser, um, motivations or whatever. It's, uh, my lesser instincts. It's like, I'm fucked if I don't do this. <laughs>
1: you know? Right. Yeah. It's extremely, yeah, it's a super coercive environment for sure. It's hard to blame anybody for Self-preservation, definitely.
0: Yeah. So, um, I think we've covered the political stuff. Like, what about? The I think lit- so too. What about the literary stuff? Like, you, you know, sort of have this dual identity, or you've been balancing these two um, passions of yours. You know, working as an advocate and sort of an insider in the in the political realm, but also doing uh, literary stuff, writing books, you know, founding a press, uh, doing all that kind of stuff. Like, does one predominate now? Do you still have hopes of doing both?
1: Yeah, I think um, I am still, like I said, very interested in politics, but right now I'm definitely focusing on um, the literary side of things. And I think, you know, I don't know, like I said, I'm not old to the point where I think that's the way it's always going to be. But for the foreseeable future, um, I really like the freedom to write. And I'm very fortunate in that I have a position right now at DePaul where I can teach and have free time to write. And I'm unlike when you work for... An elected official and often, unlike when you work for any kind of normal job, like I'm in a position where I'm encouraged to have this other life and I think I realize that's such a privilege because um, I have so many students who you know, I write recommendations for and who are going for jobs and, and they sort of, it's anecdotal, I should do a study like the <laughs> the oligarch study, but they say they have to kill so much of themselves to just get a job. Like you're not supposed to admit to an interest in anything but serving the company or serving the boss like it you know it's bad if you're a musician it's bad if you want to go home and do yoga it's like you have to just surrender yourself to the job all the time so i i feel lucky it's so depressing it's so depressing so i feel lucky to to found one of the vanishingly few positions and mine's precarious too right i'm just a visitor i'm i'm part of this whole why hire people permanently when we can get them to work
0: yeah without
1: security, you know, and yeah. And I mean, I have a salary and benefits. I'm not an adjunct. And I think about that a lot, but I, I don't have tenure. I don't have the prospect of tenure. So I just, I guess I too, am trying to find the best way to, to try to be like a good person, but also, you know, to, to not make the world a worse place. And I don't want to sound holier than thou either, but I, I'm trying to, no. I'm still figuring it out. Like, where can I, where can I live and preserve myself, but also not hurt other people? You That's know?
0: right. No. And I think this is something that's on my mind and I think it should be on uh, everybody's mind. I would hope it would be, but it's hard again, when like the forces of necessity come to bear because to have the ability to think about your volition and to think about um, you know, the, the moral consequences or the ecological consequences of whatever it is that you do, that's sort of a privilege. Right. People who don't yeah. have, pe- or it's not even sort of a privilege. It is a privilege because people right. who, who don't have the time um, th- to think about that stuff, they're just trying to survive. So I get, right. th- I get that, but you know, when the stakes are as high as they seem to be with regard to the state of the planet. And when you think about how much time we all spend at the work that we do, you know, day in and day out, You would hope that the net impact is positive. And so many of our jobs and so many of our products, when you measure like pollution or you measure like, you know, like you think about like, uh, I don't know, certain art TV shows, uh, if you want to call it art. You know, you think about like reality TV or TV that really plays to people's insecurities or people's sense of lack or it incites a kind of mean spiritedness or judgmental behavior, you know, where people are sort of celebrating the... Um, pain of others, you know. You see that in reality TV. Like, I don't know. Oh, if,
1: definitely. I'm
0: not sure if that's like a net positive. Even if it is like entertaining and taking people's minds off their work, like I, I think about my own work, and I want to believe that, you know, whatever whatever it is that I do would have, um, you know, that is it, that at its foundation. That I have put good thought into what I'm doing, and that it, you know, even if it doesn't make a lot of money, it's not. Making things worse
1: <laughs> right, yeah, and I think I don't know I've been thinking about that too. I just was in um, Denver doing a, a reading um, summer Browning and Elisa Gabbert's Bad Shadow reading series, and I you know was staying with Elisa because she's my writing partner, and we're friends and um, yeah we you know we thought a lot about like art and and what it does and why, and um, I think I don't watch a ton of contemporary TV because um, for one thing, I just don't like the stock and trade of humiliation, but reality TV does i don't. It makes me sad and uncomfortable, and, and also I just don't – I'm just not up on it. But, like, I often like older stuff, and this is going to make me sound more conservative <laughs> than I want to. No, no, um, I,
0: I was about to join but, you in that. I'm, I'm about to join you in, sound, in <laughs> sounding like an old fogey, but go ahead first.
1: But, yeah, I mean, so many things – I read a lot about contemporary TV, and I'm, I'm so depressed when I read about, like, True Detective or, you know, which – Treats women appallingly, or like Game of Thrones, which apparently just had a big rape okay. twist in okay. okay. and a storyline, and I just i, I can't
0: <laughs> I got I, I gotta intrude, I gotta intrude because yeah, the, the, yeah, those, those two shows are they're very current they're very popular um I've monitored this in me, okay because I've come around to this idea that like what we ingest, whether it's food or whether it's like books that we read, whatever it is, like it has an impact on your health it seems like an yeah. it seems like an obvious point, but like you know, it's not something that was always conscious for me. Like, I was just like, oh, you're just watching TV, whatever. You know, like I, it's just a show.
1: But right. I have
0: found that I don't sleep. I mean, I have trouble sleeping anyway. But if I watch Game of Thrones or True Detective before I go to bed, it's always a shitty night of sleep. And I wonder why. Like, people are getting yeah. knifed and treating each other horribly and beheaded and, you know, like, ritually killed in, like, some horrific way. And it's like, oh, well... No wonder. Like this Maybe
1: is, that's why. Yeah. Then
0: I sound, but I, then I feel like, oh, my God, I sound like one of those old people who's like kids, you know, like only watch the wholesome program.
1: Right. Or like your tipper gore being like, let me get out my parental advisory <laughs> right. sticker. And that's right. not remotely what I'm saying. I would never. And I know it's not what you're saying either. I would never censor it or presume to tell anyone but myself what I should or shouldn't watch. But I do think that idea of. Mindful watching is really important, and like the the movie that Elisa <laughs> had me watch that was important to her childhood, we watched this Friday night. You know, after we got in, and I had never seen it, but um the Secrets of Nim.
0: Oh yeah, I don't Mrs. know if you've seen it. Mrs. I just we, yeah. I made my yeah. I made my little daughter watch it, but she's she was oh, good. Little, she was a little you know she was a little spooked because that's sort of like an adult cartoon. I mean, like Jonathan, it's Bri- scary, Jonathan Grisby, yeah. and like the scientific research and like the. You know, what, Nim is the research laboratory. I mean, like, there's yeah. like, like, a whole cool sci-fi thing. Like, I want to see this remade. It feels like a really cool story. But.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I mean, and exactly. And it was dark, definitely. And it just, it made me think a lot about what I like to consume because I it helped me see. You know, it's a I wouldn't call that a violent cartoon, but it's not unviolent. It's it's Watership Down esque, where you've got these you know anthropomorphic creatures embodying the full range of of human emotion and behavior. But I think on balance, its message was so. Positive compared to what I see. Like, I don't have kids, but I have a niece, and, you know, I think about what she's going to be into. And I think what moved me so much about that story was sort of that animal rights, you know, and sci fi subplot. Like, yeah. it was about animal testing and about these animals suffering to a point where they became sentient and escaped. Like, that's heavy stuff. And, right. you know, it was about the motivations of Mrs. Brisby, who didn't, you know, she wasn't motivated out of money or power there were characters who were motivated out of out of that kind of personal game but she was just trying to help her you know her kid and preserve her own life and just try to be a good person and i think
0: and, and it's important she, to consume that also, too she, she was also she was also trying to seduce justin let's be honest I remember. well
1: yeah i mean who what who wouldn't what a what a hunky rat and right then, uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: i mean but i mean, but I mean the third you just he's so he's such a nice guy so manly so, yeah so chivalrous
1: yeah and so so um well developed in a sense of justice yeah. um But yeah, so anyway, I I definitely think about that too. And I think it's, yeah, it's kind of crazy to me to think that, you know, it's like eating kale versus Twinkies. It's like, you know, the kale is going to have a different effect than the Twinkies. So how could we not, you know, it just seems so like, I mean, of course. But but
0: people, but it's easy to like, I can feel like shift because I have that same thought, but then I'll feel bad about myself. and be like, God, you suck. Like, just eat the Twinkie or like.
1: Right. Yeah. I don't want to sound like Gwyneth Paltrow or something. Right.
0: Right. (laughs) but it's like, you know, like we do, like, I think like, uh, you know, we talk, we, I always go back to ecology cause this is like a real huge fixation of mine, but like consumption is at the heart of it. Consumption is at the heart of inequality. Consumption is at the heart of pollution. Consumption is at the heart of war. I mean, like yeah. it's, it's how we consume and like, you know, we consume all of these things like one way or another, we are either consuming it with our mouths or we're consuming it with our eye through, you know, through our eyes and in our brains or whatever. And, you know. All I, all I think we're talking about is like, why not make this like a more conscious process instead of just like mindlessly just devouring or taking it in without thinking about its consequences. And, uh, I I did that for a long time, you know, and, and I guess that's part of getting older, hopefully getting a little bit wiser, but, um, it makes a difference. And I mean, I think about uh, like the books that I read, like what's going to be the net effect of this, like, is it going to leave me in a better state? Is it going to leave me in a better place? Like is that like a really chaste thought to have? You know, like I-
1: yeah, yeah, I don't think so, and I think I mean I think it's hard to talk about because I do think, like the Gwyneth Paltrow example. I don't hate Gwyneth the way a I lot do. of people seem to. I can't stand her. <laughs> I fully get, I fully get it. I just I don't I don't think that positively of her. I'm just kind of like. Eh. But I I I get the Gwyneth Paltrow effect of that holier than thou, like, you know how to live and I don't think, so I don't want to sound like (laughs) playing about with consumption. But I think the other thing that it's not just mindless consumption, kind of like um, you're saying, which I think is a huge problem, but also I feel like sometimes, you know, when I express like, oh, I don't want to watch this violent thing or, oh, I don't want to consume this this really, um, not even negative, but just this really pessimistic, and I would say true conservative like this idea of life as nasty brutish and short depiction of human life people are like oh you need to toughen up or you know that's the way the world is you should be able to take it and i reject that i think sometimes that's the way the world is but i think that's not the only way the world is or has to be and i think it's dangerous when we just reduce ourselves to this this nasty brutish and short everyone is out to to eat the other person kind of and, and, Mindset.
0: Uh, that well, and the, like that, that like that sort of attitude has like this tough bearing. Like I'm tough. I get it. Right. But really, yeah. But really, it's rooted in fear, and that's not tough. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like I think it's actually tougher, and uh, it takes more strength to have like some idealism and some optimism in a world that can be as brutal as the one that we live in. And you know, yeah. it's much easier to just be like, "This is the way it is. Fuck it." You know, like right. eat or be eaten, or whatever the case may be. And um, I think it takes more work to like maintain a sense of. Uh, hope you know
1: yeah i mean i think yeah i think that makes me think of a morrissey (laughs) lyric it's so easy to laugh it's so easy to hate
0: yeah we're we're really we're we're sliding down into gwyneth paltrow morrissey
1: to be gentle and kind yeah it's too bad that sometimes the people who say this kind of stuff are really
0: well i I like morrissey i gotta say i I,
1: love morrissey so much yeah yeah,
0: i like morrissey and uh my gwyneth I, i have like problems with gwyneth paltrow's media presentation my wife, I think, likes her. I think, like, she's like more forgiving. We have this debate about Gwyneth, and um, you know, I don't want to be uh, a person who expresses like uh, hate for people. I-, I think sometimes she can be a little bit out of touch, slash, a lot out of touch with like what normal people go through, just because she comes from a place of such extreme privilege. Uh, yeah, and, and like, then she goes like camping for a night and like writes like a 3000 word essay about it for some magazine about it was like the hardest thing she ever did. You know?
1: Right. I know. And I know. Yeah. She has tone problems. She has
0: tone problems, but I don't think that necessarily makes her a bad person. And, uh, I think too, like sometimes when you uh, express disdain for somebody, uh, it says more about you than it does about them. So you have to be fair, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about you and your writing, like, uh, and also your life. Like, are you from Chicago?
1: Yeah, I'm from – well, I was born in uh, West Virginia, and I grew up in Nebraska and Louisiana and then um, the western suburbs of Illinois. My dad worked for the VA hospital, so we moved around a lot. But um, I definitely consider the Chicago area home, and I Chicago I love land. Chicago. The Chicago Yeah, land. Yeah, it, which sounds like a weird amusement park, but um, – <laughs>
0: It's like, the in, I, uh, it's like the inland empire out here. The-
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't live in Chicago and I now live in Chicago proper. I'm I'm totally a city person and I got to the the actual city as soon as I could.
0: Good. Good. What part of the city? Do you mind me asking?
1: No, not at all. I love talking about Chicago. Um I'll try not to, to be boring. Um I live on the far north side, Edgewater, which really is at the edge of the water, the water being um lake michigan and i think that's one even that name is something i love about the city versus the suburbs like i grew up in woodridge illinois and there were very few woods and no discernible ridge um and i hate that suburban naming phenomenon where it makes everything sound so bucolic when really yes. it's terrible
0: Well, my sister, but edgewater
1: really is at the edge of the water
0: yeah my sister lives in indiana in like a neighborhood called spyglass hill and indiana is nothing if flat so it's like
1: yeah, I, I totally
0: get it. I totally. And I I grew up in what, like Briarwood? There were no briars. There was no. Wood. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <You know? laughs> yeah. 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 It's false advertising. Or no,
0: it was Briar Stone. There were a few stones, but there was no, bri- <laughs> there was no briar. That was in my neighborhood. But
1: yeah, that sounds like a Grimm's fairy tale.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so you grew up and you said you lived in Louisiana. I'm, I have family in Louisiana. So I'm always curious, like what part of Louisiana were you in? Shreveport. Okay, that's a that's a yeah. that's a like a, a ways away from where my parents grew up, but I'm getting ready to go down there next or this weekend for a wedding. So, oh, nice, nice. Yet another. My family's huge, so I'm down there for a wedding. It seems like once every six months. Yeah. Um. So okay. So you grew up uh, moving around a little bit, but mostly Midwestern. And you you mentioned earlier that you had kind of this like activist political streak and idealism, you know, from a young age. Uh, what about your literary bent? Like, was that expressing itself when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, definitely. I um, I always wanted to write. I was one of these people, you know, who I think as soon as I had the power, even before I had the power to write, I wanted to tell stories and write. And, you know, I think this is common among writers. I have these, you know, tapes that my mom made of me even before I could write where I'm like telling stories, just like silly little kid stories. So it definitely was in me at a young age and my parents encouraged it. So I feel lucky like I it's weird when I go into people's houses at all and they don't have books but I I'm always struck when I go home which I do often because my parents just live an hour away how many books are always piled around even though my parents are not um I wouldn't call them not creative people I think they're creative but they don't work in a creative profession they're pharmacists you know they work in pharmacy so they're not they wouldn't call themselves artists
0: but like but can you do, you do you look at one of your parents ago that's where I got it from or is it both or
1: um I think both i think um i think more than any any one thing either of them did they were always like there's three of us and we're all girls i'm the oldest Um, my sister beth is a photographer my sister megan's a social worker and i feel like we ended up doing such different things because my parents were always like do what you want to do do what you love um which is again a, a privileged thing right they were able to give us a life where other considerations were taken care of to an extent that we could have that luxury of being like, yeah, I want to be a photographer. So Right.
0: right. Well, no, I mean, I've talked to, enough, I mean, hundreds of writers now and I always, you know, I often, like, I would say the overwhelming majority of them come from some sort of privilege, whether, whether, that, right. whether that privilege was like born of like some sort of lucky stroke or a scholarship or something, but you can't get into this line of work or it's very difficult to get into this line of work without, Support, yeah. support of some kind, you know, whether it's right,
1: a room of a room of one's own, basically. Yes, yeah. Yes,
0: yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, I think like it's an important thing to be honest about because, uh, I think that there are people out there who might not come from that, who are, you know, have an inkling of it. And it's better to, I think, know the situation than to feel like some sort of profound lack because, do you know what I'm saying? Like I think sometimes yeah. people can look at it and go, God, how am I not being able you know, how am I not writing this book? Right. And it's like, well, you didn't get X scholarship or you're not subsidized somehow or
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think I just think in this not to get too political again, I don't wanna like circle us back, but it's, I think people need to be more honest about money yes. in this country in general. I just think it's crazy how people are so like, I, I feel like that's coercive too, to be like, Oh, that's private. Don't talk about that. Yes. That's so gauche. I'm like, no, be transparent. Be honest. It, it controls so much stuff. Just own it.
0: Right. I agree. I completely agree. And I, I think, especially with res- with respect, I mean, I, with to the arts, just because that's the, you know, the water that I swim in, but Right. Um, and and if you're like and I love like literary biography. Like I read a lot of that stuff and I'm like over, yeah, me too. And over and over and over again. You read literary biography and you're like, "Holy shit. Like I didn't know that somebody had like blessed this person with like a lifetime of funds or like right. that like just when they were about to be homeless some like, you know, kindly widow, you know, like gave him a house in the country or whatever it was, you know, like that sort of stuff seems to happen with uh consistency in the arts, one way or the other and It gives me even more respect for the ones who like truly wrote from the gutter, you know, or or wrote wrote from really hard Scrabble situations working like two and three jobs and, you know, did it for a lifetime. Like, uh, right. That's, that seems to me heroic.
1: Yeah, me too. Definitely.
0: So, So, you know, you go to, you said you went to college in Washington.
1: Yep. George Washington University.
0: Okay. with like, Were you going there like I'm going like, to, like you said earlier, capital M, capital D, make a difference in politics?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I again, with the dorkiness, was voted most likely to become president <laughs> in my high school senior superlatives. I also got best person to borrow homework from and worst car. Um, so, what, were you and driving? Like
0: what were you driving?
1: It was a um, like a snot green 1984 Chevy Celebrity. Okay. It was it was yeah. pretty crappy. And then my sister Beth won worst car three years later, and then my sister Megan won worst car uh one year later when she Fam- graduated. Family so, pride.
0: Family pride.
1: Totally, yeah. Drove it into the ground. Um <laughs> conspicuously American car. Um but yeah, so I I definitely, you know, thought I I thought that was possible. Um and so I went to DC and actually um they had like floors, like themed floors. So I lived on the politics and values floor my freshman year. And I, you know, I had really drank the Kool-Aid. I really thought this was going to be, you know, a lifelong thing for me and, and various circumstances have kind of mitigated that. But I'm, it was a great floor to live on. I feel like I got like this classic liberal arts, you know, this old trope, which I think is true and important about how college doesn't necessarily prepare you for a job. It, it For one, you know, if you're cynical about it, and I think this is accurate, it teaches you to be like, the kind of hoop-jumping person who who went to college. But I think at its best, it it teaches you how to be maybe a thoughtful citizen. And I feel like, you know, my decision to go there and live on this floor and, you know, study these certain texts and and systems really helped me have that kind of holistic picture.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, mean, did you you have inklings of running for office when you went to college?
1: I did. I did. And I I think I quickly realized – you know, even then that that probably would not be in the offing because I didn't come from <laughs> as privileged as a background as I had, I did not come from so much money that um that, that would really be plausible. I mean the first question usually that you get asked nowadays, if you express an interest in running for office is where's your first million gonna come from? Yeah. And that's been that way for a long time and so I think I very quickly was like, shoot you know, I don't know. I don't have a million dollars. And you're
0: like, I also like poetry. I'm starting to read a lot of poetry.
1: Right. Right, Exactly. So it was, yeah. Yeah. The writing was on the wall.
0: Wow. Okay. So then what about the, speaking of writing, like when did that start to um, creep into the picture? Like,
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I mean, I'd always been writing and I think, you know, as I slowly got a little more disillusioned about possibly a career in politics, I had, started noticing that GW had a great um, English department. Jane Shore was one of the poets who was there. Um, And then these two women, I would be remiss if I didn't mention them, um, Tara Wallace and Margaret Sultan, who um, teach on the lit side. They're not creative authors, but Margaret Sultan has a great blog. And Tara was just a fantastic writer whose specialty was actually um, the 1700s. But they both – we're just wonderful teachers and, and like opened up avenues to me of writing that I don't think I had considered before. And, like, for example, my first book, um, about Oprah's book club is called Reading with Oprah, the book club that changed America. And it started as my senior honors thesis at GW. It started as a thing I wrote as a 22 year old. And it was a situation where these two women, noticed what I was doing and encouraged me. And now as a professor, I just respect what they did all the more. They were so generous with their time. Like the guidelines for the thesis was, you know, 40 page paper and then leave us alone. But I was like, I think I could write a book. And they were like, we think so too. Feel free to keep sending us pages. And that's just so, right. I mean, that was colossally generous. And I've tried to always keep that in mind as, as I consider how to treat my students.
0: Yeah. No, that's, I mean, doing like doing the grading is like I always say. Is right. Like, that's the hard part of teaching, you know, especially when mm-hmm. you when you're in a in a writing program and you're getting you know three hundred pages a week or whatever to go over cause right. it's one thing to read them it's another thing to read them and then critique them totally but that's awesome, so you did that book when you were just twenty two years old
1: yeah, well, it didn't come out until um two thousand and five when I was twenty five and it went through um you know as is probably not a shocker. you have to do a lot of work to take um your twenty two year old senior honors thesis and make it into a book that anyone would want to read or publish. And so I did. And, you know, I worked with um, an agent and and a lot of editors and stuff and got it into, you know, book form. But yeah, it, it all stemmed from a project that senior year. And so I think to circle back to your question, that's where I really started to, to straddle both of these worlds and think like, okay, if I don't end up being the first female president of the United States, there's other stuff I could do. Well,
0: and then was the writing in any way sort of like uh, medicinal or like, were you like uh, feeling like, uh, for lack of a better word, were you like feeling dirty from the political work and you're like, I'm going to scrub myself with like <laughs> yeah. some poetry. This is a more pure pursuit. This is not sullied by like, you know, some sort yeah.
1: Of- No, I like that idea. But um, I think, you know, I I just liked it because of the freedom, I think, and the sense of discovery. And at that point, I hadn't gotten that disillusioned with um, politics. I would say my full disillusionment didn't happen until later, you know, until I'd seen a few more campaigns, because I was so young then still. Um, But I just, again, like circling back to this job thing, I just, I liked that I could be a free agent, at least for a little while. I mean, of course, when you bring the industry into it, it's, it's as bad as any other industry may be worse, you know, having to, to try to be marketable and having to try to make some money off of it. So I don't want to present art as this pure, unsullied field, because I think that's short-sighted. But I did, I did like the ability to discover stuff and not have to, at least in the early stages, answer to anybody but myself.
0: Right. And then you did another memoir, you did a memoir called Live Nude Girl, My Life is an Object. So were you an, uh, an art model?
1: Yes, I was. I, um, I started doing that in undergrad too.
0: Okay. Cause that doesn't seem to, to square with like a political career.
1: <laughs> no, it doesn't. I think by then I had kind of figured, uh, maybe I wasn't going to do that, but I think I also thought like, why shouldn't a political candidate have done that? I think, you know, again,
0: yeah.
1: idealists move the ball forward. And so what if I pose I'd vo- I'd for, for I'd, artists? Yeah.
0: I'd, <laughs> I'd vote for a politician. I'd probably be more inclined to vote for a politician. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I figured that I could, it could be kind of like a Dennis Kucinich you know, type of move where it's like I'm so out there that the people who like me might really like me, <laughs> even always, if everyone else hated me. Hey,
0: I love Dennis. I think Dennis is
1: awesome. Me too. Yeah, I, me too. I, I, used to
0: have, I, used to, I, I have a buddy back in Colorado who's like super conservative, and we used to go back and forth. And uh, I remember like for his birthday one year, I got him a Dennis Kucinich T-shirt like as a joke. <laughs> I, I, that's I, just, awesome. I just feel like Dennis Kucinich, like, cause people are always like, Oh, you know, like Obama's so liberal and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, no he's not. I'm like, you want to see a liberal? Like Dennis Kucinich right. is a real liberal. Like that's what they look like. you know?" <laughs> like,
1: yeah. And I think they're so important, even though, you know, I know he's run for president, but just to, just to set the the barometer and just be like, no, 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 this is left. You know, yeah, I think, yeah. I think they're important.
0: I do too. Well, that's the thing. It's like this, it's like this spectrum, right? You have your left and your right and you have these agents Who who move the middle and like when you have you know your Rand Pauls and your Dennis Kuciniches and everywhere in between you know that's sort of what determines the the way that the thing is gauged.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: So okay, so you did this nude modeling. So clearly, like that's not that's not something that like troubled you. Like I would have a lot of trouble nude modeling. I have. I guess I have body image issues or something, but like I did, were you ever scared to get up there or were you just like, fuck it? This is who I am. I can do this.
1: Yeah, no, that's funny that you should say that because I think I did it not out of confidence, but out of working out some body issues. You know, I think I, I did feel confident and I did feel again to, to talk about the privilege thing. I mean, I was a 22 year old young woman. It's not in our society hard if you fit, you know, a rough template of, of standards to get people to want to look at you if that's the case, you know. Yeah. So, I don't think it was maybe as hard for me as it might be for other people, but It would be hard for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think it would be hard for a lot of people and it wasn't easy for me the first time I did it. I I really thought I was right there in the room at the Corcoran School of Art and Design in DC and when the you know, everyone was so nice, there was even another model and and when the teacher was like, "Okay, like robes off." I was like, maybe I won't do this yeah. but then I did it and it was good and I think that's one of the things I like and I, I talk about this in the memoir I think I felt like the safest and the least objectified when I was art modeling than you know just walking down the street and having people you know catcall from their cars I never felt
0: does that happen to you I a mean, lot
1: yeah, it did. I was just in Denver and it was like the first hot day and I wasn't even wearing like a sundress. Not that wearing things makes you a target, but I was just wearing like jeans and I got but you don't so like, yelled at. I don't
0: mean to be Okay, I don't mean to be rude, but I got to ask cuz like if somebody if some woman cat called me, I would be like, "Hey." You know, like think <laughs> I would be so flattered. I mean, I know that it can be yeah, sort of rude, rude yeah. it's different for women. It's different for women. It's different and it's I, you know, explain it to me though because it is kind of flattering people think you're hot like uh,
1: It doesn't – well, here, that's a good thing. I think – okay, so this is a quote that gets attributed to Freud. I don't know if he actually said it, and I don't super care, but I think this kind of gets at it. He said maybe that everything is about sex except sex, which is about power. And I think that's what's happening. It's not just that people are like, hey, baby, looking good. They're like, I'm in my car. You're on the street. I'm going to drive by and use my – power to call attention to you and to make you an object in a way that you, you know, you're walking around enjoying your subjecthood and now I'm gonna objectify you. And I don't think that's what's going through. I don't think people are thinking these polysyllabic <laughs> academic terms when they like whistle at you from a truck. But right. I think that's part like when women are like, ugh, that's why. Because it's not just like, my you look nice today. It's like yeah. Hey, I, I have some power right. and I'm going to arbitrarily exercise it. And there's not really going to be anything you can do,
0: but you then, know? Then, then there's also like the guys who are like, I'm just so shy. Like, this is my one chance. <laughs> 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 yeah.
1: Well, I will say, you know, one of the, the nicest thing that got yelled at me when I was in Denver was I was wearing these cool sunglasses and this one guy was like, those glasses, you know, those are great. Oh. And I was like, that's the way to yell a compliment. There you go. You like, know? yeah.
0: Let's let's get down to the accessories. Let's try to like not make this about like a body part or like some sort of right, broad, yeah. Broad, broad whistling. Be like, I love the cuffs on your blouse. You know?
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think um, you know, I don't know, but yeah, okay. yeah. But but with the art modeling thing, I think I was definitely, you know, I came from a pretty like conservative Catholic family, and again, it's not easy to connect the dots of like you know coming from this sort of oppressive body hating, and and often women-hating um, cultural background to want to, wanna, like, reclaim that, you know?
0: Sure, I get that. I, am, I was raised Catholic, so I totally get it. Yeah,
1: maybe yeah, yeah. Maybe I
0: should go do some art modeling. God, that would be hard. Maybe,
1: me. yeah. That'd yeah, be. I think if anyone's interested in doing it, they should try it at least once Ugh. To see what happens.
0: I'd be a nervous wreck. But uh, anyhow, uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you about rose metal. Yes. <laughs> because in addition to writing all this stuff, uh, poetry, nonfiction, fiction – uh, you're also a founding editor of Rose Metal, which is uh, a publisher of literary work and hybrid genres. And um, I had Elisa Gabbard on this show. We, we spoke actually at length about the hybrid form, if I recall. Yeah,
1: correctly. yeah. And I I, you, yeah, I remember
0: that. You guys are cohorts. So how did Rose Metal get started? What are you guys up to?
1: Yeah, that's I love. This is a great. I'm so glad you asked about it. Um, we were founded in 2006 by myself and Abby Beckel. Who, I'm gonna say her name again because she's so great, Abby Beckel. Uh, we met at Emerson, and we, you know, came out of the writing, literature, and publishing program there. So I think we both had
0: what you grad um, school.
1: Yeah, yeah, we had both gone to get our masters. She got her MA, and I got my MFA. But I think we both chose Emerson because of that sort of practical publishing side of things. And you know, we met each other there, worked on a literary magazine, and kind of realized that the you know Venn diagram of our talents overlapped really harmoniously. Um, and so when we we graduated in 2005, and you know from that point forward, we sort of hatched this plan to um, create our own press because we both had worked in various aspects of, of journal and book publishing um, and didn't want to move to New York. We just are, you know, we wanted to do other stuff. So we were like, how can we practically apply this stuff um, without being part of, um, you know, this already existing geographically based system? Um, and so and also we just love hybrid genres. We saw a lot of our peers in the program and then just a lot of people generally writing this kind of, you know, autobiography of Red and Carson type cross genre stuff. And, you know, Ann Carson is, of course, this rock star example of somebody who did that and got, I think, the attention she deserved and and published by a big publisher, but a lot of people weren't. So we wanted to create a home for, you know, prose poetry, image and text, flash fiction, um, and also to kind of do this economy of scale um, sustainability thing where, you know, maybe is our, you know, book, The Louisiana Purchase, which is like a historic retelling in prose poems going to sell, a million copies? No. Right. But we're not going to print a million copies. We're going to print a thousand copies, um, you know, and try to get those into the hands of readers who are really going to like what we're doing. Cause I think you don't have to, you know, you don't have to sell a million copies of something. You just have to sell all the copies you printed, you know?
0: Sure, sure, sure. And you know, and a thousand still a lot and you never, yeah,
1: yeah. It's significant.
0: It's so hard to, it's so hard to be predictive about it too. I mean, I think with some books you can sort of say, yeah, the audience is going to be small for this. There's no question. Um, but sometimes books are will surprise you and and let 's face it if if people really knew the formula, then everyone right. would be, everyone <laughs> would be doing
1: it, <laughs> yeah, there would be no flops yeah it 's always a gamble, so we just gamble on like a slightly smaller scale
0: and do you guys do um, like you 're accepting submissions, or are you going out and soliciting authors that you kind of f- f- scout
1: yeah, out? yeah we good good question. um We always have a contest um, each year from November to december it 's like a month long submission period and that's for a chat book, a short, short, either fiction or nonfiction chat book. And we, you know, a typical contest, we have like a celebrity um, judge, you know, who who judges for us and, and picks the winner. And then we um, usually do open reading periods. We wanted very much we, we vowed never to publish ourselves and we vowed not to, you know, publish our friends. Um, not that if our friends submitted in an open reading period, like open reading periods are not blind. Our contest is blind. But we really, really wanted to try to um, branch out and to make discoveries ourselves. So even though, you know, we went to grad school and tons of our friends are doing kick-ass work, we we wanted to try to find these people who might not have opportunities elsewhere. And so, so far that's worked. I mean, the thing is we only do three books a year. So we, I think like most small presses, you know, it's the boilerplate of we say no so much more often than we wish we had to.
0: Right. Well, but you know, hopefully, you get down to the one, the ones that you say yes to. You feel really strongly about.
1: Absolutely, we're so excited about everything we say yes to. And just to um, give a, a small plug, we're um, getting ready to put out our newest chat book, which is by an author named Todd Seabrook, who has a couple other chat books. But it's called The Imagination of Lewis Carroll, and Michael Martone picked it. And it, you know, it's this reimagination of, you know, the author of Alice in Wonderland, and it's. I'm biased, so of course I think it's great, but it's really great. And I think that's what we love is finding these things we didn't know were out there, but that are wonderful and and trying to present them to best advantage.
0: Wow. Well, that sounds exciting. And uh, it's been really fun talking with you. Uh,
1: You too. Thank you.
0: Congratulate you on O Democracy and all the other stuff that you have going. And uh, I wish you well in protecting uh, both in your literary career and then also in protecting what's left of your idealism.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Back back at you as well.
0: (laughs) all right you guys there you have it that's kathleen rooney go get her novel it's called oh democracy it's available now from fifth star press you can find kathleen online at kathleen rooney.com she's also on the twitter where her handle is at kathleen m as in michael rooney thanks to kill Rockstars, as usual for the good music be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. don't forget to go get the uh, app the the uh, official app of this program the other ppl app It's available uh, available wherever apps can be found. And it's the best way to listen to this program and access premium content, the full archives. Go sign up for that. Support the program so I can stop having uh, meltdowns (laughs) in the uh, monologue. So I can start picking up up checks justifiably. I do have a theory about that, too. I've been entertaining this in the privacy of my mind. Uh, Hang with me here for a second. I'm terrible at math. But uh, I came up with something I think that the richest person at the table Should always pick up the tab for everyone And that's how we solve the inequality problem And then everyone has to go out to dinner a lot And with lots of different kinds of people So that, you know But you know, if you're the billionaire You pick up the check That's the way it goes That's the way it should always go There's nothing worse than going out to dinner with a millionaire Who doesn't pick up the check I've had that happen before And I always bristle i was like, fuck you. A million dollars. Buy some dinner. <laughs> I have a right to that money. You guys feel me? Please remember that uh, there are 260,430 words in Ulysses that uh, Schopenhauer was found dead sitting at his breakfast. That's it for now. Thanks again to Kathleen Rooney. Go get her book. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope that in May, uh, E.T., Goes from being white and uh, near death back to being uh, healthy and regaining his brown pallor. I'll be back again soon with another conversation with another, uh, with another writerly human being. In the meantime, uh, you can uh, you can just imagine me having a word with myself quietly in the middle of an empty uh, field. <laughs>